0: Coming up on the payoff, Mike Van Meter is as established as they come. A United States Navy helicopter pilot, he served during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, then moved on to be a D.C. cop, Washington, D.C., and was an FBI agent for over two decades. But the one thing he couldn't beat, one thing he couldn't overpower with his will, was his addiction. Mike now works in the healthcare field, or should I say in the addiction field, and he carries his message of experience, strength, and hope every day in a professional capacity, but he does it here with us in a personal capacity. Mike Van Meter is an incredible guy, and he was an incredible guest. But first, I'm actually going to be a guest at this guy's place, Kevin Souza. Hey Pete, you there? Yeah, I'm looking for Van Meter Wellness Solutions LLC. Is this it? Uh, let me let me go. Let me see if
1: they're in. <laughs> let me see. Hi, this is Van Meter Wellness Solutions. How are you?
0: There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, look, I need all the treatment you can find me, pal. So I guess I've come to. The, I called the right number.
1: You did. You did. <laughs> Well, uh, that that was a, a good thing because um, we, you're not armed in there. You have to you have to learn to talk your way out of situations, and so um, you you get kind of good at it. That's where you learned all the verbal judo, because I need to get people to do things that they really don't want to do, but they got to do anyway. But you don't have any way to make them do it, so uh, you you have to use your mouth to get it done.
0: Uh, it's bad enough as an alcoholic, you probably already were a manipulator, and then you learned all the <laughs> all, all these skills, right?
1: So it came naturally.
0: (laughs) I just want to go through it here before we get started. Uh, Eight years as a U.S. Navy helicopter pilot. You served in in two wars, uh, a career as a corrections officer, D.C. cop, and then an FBI agency. And at some point, we get sober. It's hard after talking to you. I was on your Recovery Is Possible podcast last week. But it really is hard to imagine such a decorated individual uh, hitting any kind of bottom, how, how how did that happen?
1: Well, you know, that's a, a good question. And the, the thing is that I think that that's part of why I'm doing the work that I'm doing right now um, because I my specialty really is first responders and, and military people. And one of the big myths is that people like myself and people that are successful and accomplished can't hit a bottom. Um, and the fact is that people like that do. You know, there's this stigma that surrounds addiction, and I know you're very well aware of that, and and, I, and it's something that I've really devoted the rest of my life to combating, this stigma is something that has to be eradicated because I think the general public has this perception that people that have addiction issues are people living under the bridge and people that are homeless, and there certainly are those individuals, and and we're doing what we can to help them. Where we can. the fact is that's actually a very small percentage of the people that struggle with addiction. The fact is the most people that struggle with addiction are uh, people that are working in society that the other people in society might look at and say, "Hey, that's a successful person." And some of them are wildly successful. You and I both know those people that are wildly successful that yet struggle with uh, addiction issues and mental health issues or a combination of the two. And when I first came into recovery, that's what I dealt with. You know, in in my profession, that you know, if you think about my background from, and I, I entered, you know, I when I first went into training for the Navy, I was 19 years old, and I'm uh, I'll be 57 here in a few months. And if you think about it, from the time I was 19 to now, I was conditioned to not be powerless over anything. Huh. I mean, if it, if it's a fight, I'm going home. You're not. Uh, you come to me for help. I don't go to you for help. If you think about it, as an FBI agent, as a police officer, you know, people – it was amazing. It always amazed me as a, as a FBI agent in particular. Like whatever the subject is, people thought I had an answer to that. If uh, you wanted to certainly know about criminal issues, you'd ask me. If you wanted to hear about something in the news, you would ask me. But people would say, "Hey, wh- what do you think of the stock market? <laughs> like, what the <laughs> hell do I know about the stock market?" You know. But it was just—it was like this aura that was around you that people thought, "Well, you're an FBI agent; you should know everything." Now, if you juxtapose that over to now, an FBI agent needs to be in recovery, and your whole life has been people come to you for help. You never go to anybody else for for help, but now you need help. Then what do you do? And step one, if, if those the, for the people that are listening that are familiar with the twelve steps, the first step is I'm powerless over alcohol and my life has become unmanageable. And of course you could take alcohol and replace that with anything. And you know, it is powerlessness unmanageability. And that was really looking back on it, you know, sort of doing the, the, the post mortem on my recovery career, I think that was really the big issue. The the thought that I could be powerless over anything was foreign. It was not in my DNA to feel that way. And I did not get any semblance of sobriety until I absolutely understood that, and I think that that was the the big part of it, in in overcoming that. So, uh, I know in my profession, in the FBI, the police department, the Navy, all of it, all those professions that you just mentioned that I was a part of, uh, I knew people that needed to be in in recovery. Um, uh, my mind progressed. It took a, a period of time for that to develop, but I knew people that certainly needed help. And in fact, the funny thing is, when I was a naval officer, I sent many of my troops to treatment to get help. And I back then I couldn't understand what the problem was why they <laughs> couldn't get well. So it's that myth, uh, Pete, that we deal with that people that the public might think ha- quote unquote has it together can't have these issues. We absolutely can. When- we all know somebody. We all know somebody you know Pete. I'll just share this with you one thing I speak in front of a lot of groups now and one of the things I do in the beginning of every talk I do is I ask the audience who in here knows someone that has an addiction issue and you feel that they need to get help with it how many of you know somebody in your life that fits that category do you know Pete that I've never not had an audience where every single person raised their hand every single person raises their hand that's the extent of this yeah epidemic that we have really
0: it touches everybody in one way or another yeah and you got everybody when, when when did you get sober what's your you know i like asking people this question and with you i've learned a lot about you as a professional as a military guy as a police officer as an fbi agent or i'm continuing to learn more but i I do have a question around when exactly you did get sober. What is your sobriety date? My
1: sobriety date is August 12th of 2012. So um, we are in July. So i about about a month out. Wow. I'm not ready to hit the double digits.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so where, were you a ret- retired from the FBI at that point? No, no, I was still in.
1: I was still in the FBI. And oh, by the way, I got to do a shout out. My sobriety date and my wedding anniversary date are the same day. How about that?
2: How so cool is that?
0: <laughs> how does your wife feel about that?
1: Uh, you know what? It's it's awesome. It really wasn't planned to be that way. And I'll, I, I, if, I'm assuming that we'll kind of run through my story and, and oh, yeah. talk about how that happened, but. Uh, it, it, just, it just happened. It was our, it was the same day. It makes it easy, you know, for plenty, instead of having two expensive dinners, we can just have one expensive dinner. So it's always nice. <laughs> and, uh, it's always easy to remember those dates now, <laughs> but you know, it's it, it kind of it's symbolic too, because like a lot of people, and, and if, if you are in recovery or you're, you're struggling right now, maybe you can relate to this, but you know, Pete, I've been married to the same woman for 33 years. This, this will be 33 years. And um, in law enforcement, that's an amazing accomplishment, period, mm. because the divorce rates in it just in the profession alone. And then for alcoholics addicts, that's an amazing accomplishment. So if you put those together, uh, my wife and I have defeated the odds, that's for sure, because in those 30, that's, that's the one woman. I, I don't have five marriages that I've added up to get 33. It's
0: to one person, so... <laughs> what, so you can't when, add them
1: all up you can't
0: <laughs> when was the first time you, your mind was altered because of a substance do you remember is there is there a something you could circle on the calendar growing up as a kid or as a young adult
1: hmm. you know i don't know the exact date or the exact age but um you know i so i grew up um and alcohol by the way i, I i'm just going to throw out you know for me uh, my presenting issue my presenting substance is, is alcohol and I'm uh, you know it's because it's illegal right and if you think about my professions I was never from the age of 19 I was never in a position where I could do really anything other than alcohol if, if you think about it because I was always in professions where you were tested and uh, very and what I particularly when I was flying very 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 strict um, regulations on what we could and couldn't do so that that Limited me to alcohol. Number one and and two, um, prevented sort of the the progression of you know those of you that are familiar with addiction. It's a progressive disease, and so I would say it it sort of stopped or um, slowed down the progression of it. But as far as the the early days, I would say maybe twelve years old because I grew up in uh, Clearwater, Florida, which is a retirement community, and basically Clearwater. Florida is, you know, people around the country, you know, they, they, they're in working states. Like I know you're from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. so that's a working state, Ohio, New York, you know, people, oh, you know, these these Michigan, you know, people work in these cold places and work hard and they decide to retire and, and go somewhere, to sit in the sun before they die. We used to call Clearwater God's waiting room <laughs> <laughs> and it was God's waiting room. And so it, and I grew up in the mid seventies, late, late seventies. and the people in our neighborhood were—it was the World War II generation, you know, the Great Depression—that that era. That was—they were retiring at that time, and they, these are these were hard people. They grew up during the Depression. Many of these guys lied about their age to go into the, the military during the Second World War, and they—you know—they're they're not even out of high school and they're fighting in Europe and in the Pacific. And, and these guys didn't grow up with hug rooms and safe spaces, and you know, that, that, that was not. That, they didn't do that. They these were hard, hard people, and the way they looked at it was, hey, if I can go fight in Europe or in, in the Pacific, and I'm 16 years old, and I can drink, and they drank hard, and they drank whiskey, and they drank beer, and uh, but there were no kids in my neighborhood. Other, I mean, it was just these these people and us. We were the only family that had kids, and so my parents would throw parties and yeah, you know just have people over, and these old guys would just turn to you and say, you know, how old are you? i 15. Oh, okay, well here here's a whiskey because they were doing that when they were fifteen, and so I do remember starting my drinking very young, and, and not fifteen. I mean much younger than that, but uh, you that's know a, was, that's a really interesting
0: perspective, man. I've never yeah. heard that before. When you talk about that gritty, that tough generation, uh, if I can fight in Europe, yeah, I'm certainly gonna be able to control enjoy myself and and drinking was like you like you mentioned for your own story it was it was legal yeah. uh it was everywhere you looked right i mean commercials and, and my, i know my father's family it was it was pretty much promoted uh drinking and having oh, wait, a good wait, time wait. Yeah. and it lo- it sure as hell looked like fun i think i went to bed before most of the madness or i didn't understand the, my maybe my dad's temper and the way that he would flare up uh, was related to his alcoholism. It didn't. I, I never put it together, but drinking looked like fun, and that's a really cool uh, perspective to have on it—a historical perspective, right? Of of those guys and uh, that grew up like that in that hardcore generation, yeah. and and to, and, and, you know, and, and to be my around regrets. that, and and to kind of have yeah, grown up around that.
1: Absolutely, you know. I tell you, you know, I do podcasting, and you do, do podcasting. And one of my well, I wouldn't say regret. I mean, they didn't have podcasting when we were growing up or recording. But you know, most of those guys have passed away, mm. and I, I I would pay big bucks to to be able to go back and record like you and I are recording right now, uh, conversations I had with these guys because they all had they all had their story. And you know what? It was that was the pivotal event of their life. It didn't matter. They could become a neurosurgeon, a lawyer. Uh, you know, name an electrical engineer. It didn't matter what they did after that, because we would sit at parties and you get these guys liquored up a little bit, and you say, "Hey, uh, Mr. Smith, I heard you were a you're a neurosurgeon." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Hey, let me tell you about the war. (laughs) (laughs) That was the event of their life, man. It did not matter what they did after that. That and that stuck with me, and that that really kind of drove me into the profession because I was always intrigued by the adventure, by the you know. I, you could just tell this was just such a mark on their life, and I wanted—I wanted a part of that. In fact, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I thought, "Man, just too bad I wasn't born in that era," because I think I would have fit. I—I I to almost relate more to that generation than not my own generation, because these guys—they loved their country, they—they uh, they knew that they were part of history, and they. Uh, they knew that they were fighting evil too. I mean, World War II was truly—if—if if you could talk about good and evil, it was—it was definitely good versus evil, and they knew that, and they knew that, and I was respected that. But that kind of drove me into the military and law enforcement, actually.
0: And you're—you're you're growing up around the quote-unquote good guys. You're seeing them, um, you know, drink a lot, and you're yeah. seeing them have fun, and it's like, why wouldn't I be moved towards that lifestyle to serve my country? And—and this—this is like a great. A great bonus when, when did you start to kind of see alcohol becoming just have a more of a role in your life as you evolved?
1: yeah well you know looking back on it it's and again you, you and I both being in recovery we can look back you know and, and particularly with some of the, the addiction training that I've had over the last couple of years I can look back and I can clearly see things that were there the, the marks the, the stamps but you know it was not evident then because for those that are listening that may be new to addiction you have a couple of things here you have the social environment like what we're talking about so i'm around all these people that are drinking um heavily and then you you put in the the biological physiological factors right so you have a genetic uploading or a predisposition and then you couple that with social environment and you really need to have the two that that will go together right or one fuels the other let's Mm -hmm. put it that way so what i didn't mention was that uh, addiction runs in my family. My mom uh, died of her alcoholism. Um, her parent, Both of her parents died of their alcoholism. And I don't know the rest of the family line, but certainly those two. And then on my, the other side, my, my dad's side, you have the process addictions, which are uh, those of you that aren't familiar with process addictions, those are addictions that you can have where it's not putting the chemical in your body, but it can be di- addictive. For example, eating is one of those. Uh, although you put your your body, it's still considered a process addiction. Uh, pornography, gaming, uh, gambling, those types of those would be process addictions, and so that happens on the other side of the family. Now you put that together, that means that I was already genetically preloaded uh, for that. And uh, when now when I work with patients and we go through the biopsychosocial uh, assessments and we go into the history. Uh, n- nearly all the the patients that you work with will have addiction somewhere else in their life. In fact, I would imagine you had it somewhere. Oh else. yeah, am I my, correct?
0: Yeah, my dad's family. Yeah. W- yeah, there was big time alcoholism on that side of the family. Yeah, see, and the first common, time I drank, it, it, and 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 it's for me. I don't know if it's like this for you. It was kind of a load off when I finally accepted that I had this disease and this addiction issue yeah. because I was a sick person and there was an opportunity for me to get well. Uh, through getting sober and through stopping it, whereas for a while I felt like, well, alcohol and drugs are this gift, um, and and they're going to be stolen from me. And at some point right. I kind of saw for what it was: is this thing's killing me, uh, and, yeah. and 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 it's it's not me. I'm not, I, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me. Uh, I can I can change this now. Now the alcohol is making me do things, and those things, by definition, are making me. A bad guy to be around, but I knew that I had the light in me. I just had to flick it on, but you know, it gets over.
1: Yeah, well, it's that acceptance, and in, in the there's a chapter in the Big Book, and in that chapter, it talks about acceptance, right? Acceptance of your condition of your alcoholism. That's a prerequisite of this because it's there, it's genetically. And the Big Book also talks about how people that are not alcoholic, and we can use that, we can extrapolate that to other drugs as well, but. But people that are alcoholic have uh, the feeling that we get, the sensation that we get from alcohol is different than non-alcoholics. My wife is not alcoholic And I know, you know, back when we were dating, we were dating in college and and if she would have. Where'd you go to school? uh, More than uh, Florida, University of Florida.
0: Oh, okay. Gator,
1: okay. Yeah. uh, University of Florida in the, the mid 80s and, you know, big party school. And that was, that was actually part of my story too. But when she and I started dating, um, if she had more than two drinks, you know, it was that. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling kind of lightheaded. I'm feeling tingly, and I don't like that. You know, and I never understood that when we were dating because I'm like, yeah, that's just that's just the ride home. <laughs> that's what yeah. I mean. That's, I, I like that feeling, but but you see, she's not an alcoholic, right? So and and there and I won't bore you with the the, the physiology behind it, but there's physiological reasons. Uh, there's a euphoria that you and I get it from drinking that. Non-alcoholics do not – it's not the same feeling. And in our brain, it's a miswiring of the survival mechanism where when we get that feeling, your body then takes a substance, which is alcohol, which is actually a toxin to every single cell in your body. It's a poison. It, it's something that um, your body should reject. Just like if you were to drink Clorox, like a bottle of Clorox, your body would immediately – reject that and you would purge it and, and you would shut it down you would you need to see treatment well alcohol is, is also a toxin and so if you think about it when you drink too much what happens with your body your body no a you stop you you uh throw it up you uh might have to get your stomach cut pu- because your body needs to get rid of it right but what happens in our our body is that feeling that 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 miswiring the genetic miswiring that we have Your body, your brain, because this is a disease of the brain and the body, if your brain then looks at this, and because of the miswiring, it says, hey, not only is this not bad, but it's good. And if it's good, we need more of it because your body looks at it as survival. and we will drink it until our death because ultimately it's about death. And Father Joseph Martin, who was the, the co-founder of Ashley Treatment Center, which is uh, one of the places I went through treatment, um, he used to have this this line. One, in, in where you paying famous- attention,
0: folks, one of the places. So this guy's, you know, this is an interesting story here. Keep going. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Like, you caught that very well. We're, well. We'll circle back to that. But uh, and Joseph Martin, Father Joseph Martin, uh, he used to do the famous chalk talks. If, it, if the listeners have ever seen that series, it's, it's a classic. You need to see it. But it is. Yeah. He always talked about um, alcohol is the great remove. It's a great cleanser. It's a great remover. He says it's great for cleaning grease, dirt. You can actually remove um, lacquer off of tables if you need to do that. But it's, but it also is very good at removing lives, careers, children dreams you know professions and those things it's the great remover and that's what happens wow is, and, and and also uh, addiction is the disease remember it's mind and body and it's the disease where your brain actually tells you that you don't have it it tells you that you don't have it and and anybody that works with addicts and in alcoholics and i and i see this every day uh in fact i was working with some individuals this week that it's like um, they are not, their brain is not capable of allowing them to see what is painfully obvious to everyone around them. That's what addiction is. Uh, it, that's what addiction is. It's the disease that tells you that you don't have it. So
0: uh, it still does I today, the by way the way. Well, if people are listening to this and they're sober for 30 days, 30 years, uh, they will probably agree with us that you. it remains that disease that tells you that you don't have it, which is why you have mm-hmm. to continue to practice your coping skills, uh, and doing stuff like this, you know, just talking to other alcoholics, sharing with them. I know, mean, I love, I love talking to other alcoholics. I've talked to you before, and there's a, there's an energy that we share and there's a curiosity that I have around your story. And, and you mentioned mm-hmm. the university of Florida, you yeah. go, you go there that being a big party school. Did that foster your drinking career
1: yeah you must have read about that in playboy magazine they talked about that didn't they That we were the number one party school in the nation but, no, but then well, again it was not fair to compare <laughs> professionals to amateurs
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what was your drinking like in college
1: yeah well okay so that, that's interesting so i went from high school where you know i told you about the environment and just you know this is the early 80s too and it was a different environment i mean I well, I would do things drinking wise that if my own kids did it I would be horrified at it. I mean it, we we would go to keggers, we would go to uh, drinking parties, you know, in high school, where you know you're driving you can't even see straight, you know, driving down the street. And you know back in those days you could get pulled over by a, a sheriff or a police officer and it was just more like, you know, hey, where are you going? I'm going over there. Well, okay, get home. I don't want to see you out on the street. Okay, yes sir. Those days are over, but that's the way it was back then. And it was almost promoted. So But speaking of that, remember, we're talking about genetic pre-uploading and environment coupled together. So I go from that environment to now I'm at the University of Florida, but I'm also in Navy ROTC. All right. So two things there. One, University of Florida, absolutely party reputation. okay, And it was part of what you did when you're there. Now, couple that with I go into the Navy. Well, the Navy has a, a party, rip- the military in general. And there's a drinking culture in the military. You know, um, Pete, did, did you see the new Top Gun that just came out? The I did, one? yeah. You did? Well, um, there was no helicopters in there. That was the only part that was down. I mean, the, the real pilots in the Navy fly helicopters. Uh, that was the downside to the movie. But, <laughs> you know, but, did, but did you know that now that I point this out, now this is 2022, this movie comes out. Did you not notice how many of the scenes revolved around the officer's club and drinking?
2: Yeah. Did you not see that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this is 2022, right? Now, the first movie uh, came out in the mid-'80s, and if you go back and look at it, if you doubt what I'm saying, go back. The movie tends to center around drinking. Well, that's kind of how the Navy really was. Only the drinking was much harder than what they d- depicted in the movie. You know, yeah. in in the military, there is definitely a culture, and in law enforcement, by the way, and I'll talk about that here in a little bit. But there is a culture in the military of drinking. I think it's better than it used to be, but it was definitely, definitely there. The Navy had a reputation for drinking, and you know, when I went to flight school in the Navy, some of my instructors were Vietnam era throwback guys i mean so it was even worse remember this tail hook it was like if you remember all the the fiasco with tail hook, that was this group of people that were coming in and and when you know on the weekends you know we work hard i mean let me tell you the, the military uh naval aviation is no joke you know flight school is tough deployments are tough uh it is but when we were not on deployment and we were in port or we were in in the squadron um, if the commanding officer said, "Hey, we're going to the officers' club," that was not like that was not a suggestion.
0: Yeah, you were going. I had a I and had a a guy, you drank. I was lucky enough to have a guy on here who had like hundred and fifty something combat missions in Vietnam. Yeah. Flew F fours, and he said yeah. that his name's Colonel Dan, and he always come hell or high water. Literally, like if he wasn't in the air fighting, he was in that officers' club like every night for yeah. I don't know how many years. Yep. And uh, it's just the way it was. And just like you said with your the guys you grew up around, you know, this guy went on to be wildly successful financially. But really all he wants to talk about uh, is his experience in the military and, and mm-hmm. what he, what he did uh, with his brothers in, in Vietnam. And, and I did find that to be a very interesting thread through his story that it just seemed like it was uh, like part of the curriculum was, was hardcore yeah. drinking.
1: Yes, yeah, it was it was expected. It was expected of you. <clears throat> there was no. I don't remember anyone ever saying, "Uh, yeah, no, sir, I'm not going to go." Uh, just so you know, I don't. I don't drink. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't remember anybody ever having that discussion. And when you were on the put, deploy- no, you got to remember too. Flying, we had very strict guidelines in in bottle to throttle, uh, which we we and I. Uh, What's bottle to throttle? Respect that, but like you know, you see, so you have so many hours. Uh-huh. That uh, and it's it's true. The airlines have this now. How, you know, when your last drink to when you can actually get in the cockpit and fly, that's very strictly regulated in uh, the military. Back when I was in the navy, it was even our standards were actually even more restrictive than the than the FAA. Uh, but the FAA actually was those guidelines. So there there is a, a minimum number of hours that you have from the time that you drink to when you can fly, and we respected that. Do you now, remember what it was for you? Uh, it was eight hours okay. back when I was in the Navy. I, be- I believe now, you know, I haven't flown in many years, and so if there's any pilots out there, I- I've heard that it's ten hours now. Okay, but uh, it-, it-, it was eight hours back then. Now, keep in mind that's when you're in port and you can drink. Now, when in y- U.S. Navy ships, when you're you're on deployment, you are there is no alcohol in Navy ships, and so that that rule was really not it was not relevant when we were at sea and on deployment because you know it's just not available. But when we would pull into a port. You know, I'm sure that most of the towns that we pulled into were very happy to see us <laughs> leave by the time by the time we left, because it was it was. And you got to remember too, and I think the American public doesn't understand that your average like pilot in the, the military is in their early 20s. You got to understand, I was like 23, 24 years old, flying multi-million dollar aircraft into combat zones, and on the back of you know, I flew off of the the and destroyers, the small ships. You know, you're, I'm landing, you know, a helicopter on a pitching and rolling ship at night in the rain, you
0: know, I'm 24 years old.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you understand that, right? And when you're on an aircraft
0: carrier, it's hard for me, to uh, a, a, a lay person to wrap my mind around that. I mean, it,
1: these it, guys, you know, they had, the average age on an aircraft carrier is like 20 years old. I don't think most people understand that, you know? So, uh, yeah, we, we played hard, we drank hard and we did very dangerous
0: stuff and did you find any of your drinking behind some of these these moments i mean you've probably i would imagine seen and heard it all uh and did you even though like you said you well i guess because like you said you know those guys were just pretty much the guys you grew up around it goes back to those world war ii guys drinking was part of the culture i don't want to hear about your feelings um, yeah. did, did you, Oh, nobody talks about feelings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was there a lot of, a lot of drinking to kind of cover up the experiences that were happening uh, throughout the military?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, and then you just couple that with, I like the feeling. I, I like the feeling of being buzzed. I liked the feeling of being drunk. And it, I think you and I both, would, yeah. if we were truly honest, if you and I could have that feeling now and do it without consequences, we'd probably do it now. <laughs> right yeah so it wasn't just the i think the feelings you know what in my story i actually think the covering of the feelings didn't really have anything to do with the military it came later it came later as the as it progressed because you know i did do a career shift and and went into a um uh you know you gotta remember in in the navy yeah there was death and destruction and i you know i would i would be faced with uh you know i'm i'm talking to a guy in the uh the wardroom, you know, they call it where the officers get together on a ship a wardroom, you know, one day and the next day, you know, they've crashed and the guy so the, this guy that you you just ate dinner with last night's now dead because mm-hmm. he crashed a, an aircraft into the water. And those were my first early death experiences, but uh, it, but they were occasional, right? And when it comes to combat, you know, as a pilot, so it's not like it was up anything we did was up and close and personal. Um it was later when i got into law enforcement where in particularly big city you know i was a dc police officer and um death and destruction was uh in your face and it was every day
0: yeah let's, that,
1: let, that yeah. i think was more that was when the drinking to mask feelings became more apparent than, and let's,
0: let's go forward to that and don't let me skip over anything major you know if there's anything because mm-hmm. your story there's a lot to cover uh, you, yeah, part of your helicopter. I'm old now. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, now. Before you were old, if you want to call yourself old, you still have plenty to talk about. As you move forward, there are experiences, like we said, um, fighting in the Middle East, fighting in combat zones, fighting in war. Uh, and then you end up being a corrections officer, which you mm-hmm. uh, mentioned to me offline. You, you developed the art of verbal judo because you can't have weapons as a corrections right. officer. Uh, so you learn how to cultivate that silver tongue, and then you move into law enforcement. And mm-hmm. you're, you know, a, a Washington D.C. as a police mm-hmm. officer in what the nineties, eight, late eighties? Uh, yeah, ninety-five, ninety-six. Yeah. Oof, what is, what, what, up until I went into the FBI. What the hell is that like? <laughs>
1: I love that for, what the hell was that like? You know, it's funny because I I always tell people I work for Washington, D.C. And they're they're like, even other cops, even the cops are like, oh, man. Yes. (laughs) It was. It was. It was. uh, I don't know how people do that for 20, 30 years. I really don't. But it was a great experience. Here's what happened. Um, So I was, when I was in the Navy, um, you do seashore rotations when you're in the Navy. And my wife was also Navy. I I, I think I mentioned that. If not, I'll mention it now. Okay. Um, she, she's actually retired. Um, she was a retired Navy commander. So she stayed in. So what happened was I had, um, in the mid-1980s, the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, the, the sea services all go to flight school together. And they had redone the flight the, the aptitude test that you have to take to go to flight school. So the beta test that they have the captured audience, which is all the the people at the, the academies and the OTC units, and no OCS. And so they would, they made everybody take this exam so they could get like a baseline, uh, baseline beta score, you know, for the test. So we were all forced to take this exam to include myself. Well, apparently I did well on it. Now I didn't know that at the time. I just, took it because they made us take it well when my wife and I who was my girlfriend at the time became dating it became apparent to everybody that we were going to get married uh-huh. in fact we put out that we were going to get married so now you remember you're if you're a Navy ROTC if you're a Marine Marine Corps option you're part of Navy ROTC because it's Department of the Navy but they are different branches of the service and so you know in our ignorance I guess that didn't really occur to my wife and I and but they they knew that and our my marine officer instructor came to me one day and he said hey look um here's the deal you're going to go into the marine corps she's going to go into the navy they are different branches of the service you're either going to have a career or you're going to have a marriage but you're not going to have both just just so you know
0: you mean they wouldn't change the rules for you no,
1: not at <laughs> all. <laughs> not at all. That's yeah. not how it works. Yeah, I'm realizing
0: that with life in general. Yeah,
1: yeah, it doesn't work that way. No, and so, uh, and, I, and, I, and I was thinking to myself, well, why he's having, why is he having this conversation with me? And he says, so here's the thing: um, you did well on the aviation exam, and you did well enough to be a pilot. Actually, he goes, have you ever considered? going into the the Navy or would you consider going into the Navy and flying? And I'm like, well, why are you asking me that? Well, it turns out that my wife had been selected to be an aviation maintenance duty officer to oversee maintenance of aircraft. That's so she knew that that's what she was going to do when, when she finally got commissioned. And they said, look, um, if she's going into aviation, so she's in the aviation community. And if you go to flight school Then she – then there's a better chance that we could keep the both of you together if you were a pilot. Now, that's not even guaranteed, but it's a better shot than what you have right now. And so I actually took a couple of weeks to sit and reflect on it, and I'm probably the only pilot in the Navy that actually had – was offered a flight spot and took two weeks to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I did. And uh, that's how I ended up in the Navy, uh, flying. And so and what that meant was it was great. I loved it. I loved flying. It was a great, great experience. Um, you know, you talked about the military and those experiences. You know, if you think of my eight years in the Navy, my, the, the totality of my career, which lasted like 32 years, eight years of it is just a fraction of it. But it was definitely the largest impact on my life, period, um, even more so than the police department and the FBI, to be honest with you. I spent 21 years in the FBI. The Navy had a much bigger impact on me for a lot of different reasons. In fact, as I sit here in my home office right now and I look around at all the displays I have, uh, more of them are are from the military than even from law enforcement, to be honest. Because there's just a – there's something about the military that bonds you with people. Um, There's something about the the training is so – flight school is no joke. Imagine having the worst final exam you've ever had in your life. But you're doing it
0: every day for 2 years. Imagine that. Well, imagine that you look at uh it's I can always bring it back to sports, right? I mean, you yeah. look at the Army Navy game. Uh every year. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable, right? And and the the the, the camaraderie um that you see in mm-hmm. the stands more so than on the field. Uh I think yeah. for the average person to get um you know a 35,000 foot foot uh from above look down at that uh once a year is just it's fulfilling for me as an American. I know I, I absolutely love it. And you can tell. And that's one of the things I love about recovery and talking to you. And even when I went to treatment and, and, I, and I lived in a halfway house afterwards, I started to understand. And I was a, an athlete, right? But and And I didn't understand the magic of what being an athlete was, being a young guy, the camaraderie that comes with that the lessons I was taught at the university of rich Richmond about really like interracial skills, right? Like being around people of different cultures and getting to know them. Yeah. And you talk about removing stigmas. I mean, it, it was just, it was out of mm-hmm. there. Uh, and I, I got to imagine the military on a much greater level on a much more intense level is so attractive and it's got to oh, be unbelievable. Yep. Yeah. It's gotta yeah, be a I'll high what, it was
1: you talk about uh, racial issues and religious issues i mean you're you're thrown you're in the military you're thrown in with everybody it's it's america I, the the military is the uh, if you talk about equal opportunity and and equal equality it's the greatest experiment in the United States I mean it doesn't matter I mean you're thrown in the Navy. you're thrown on a ship with every religion, every race uh every sexual orientation you know I know um you know you know, bringing in transgender people, homosexuals, things like that into the that was always the, I'll be honest with you before it was ever an issue in the public, like the general public right now, it was always like that in the military. I mean, in the military, it was pretty open as long as nobody was bothering anyone else, and there was respect amongst people then. People were just left alone to do whatever they wanted to do in the military, again, as long as you're not disrupting other people. that was and that was a great skill to bring to the table back in those days. And I think that that's why it had such an impact on me, you know, uh, and then just the closeness. I mean, the uh, you can talk about bonding with people, even in the police department, we can talk about the bonding, the thin blue blind, and all that. and it's there it's there probably more so than the rest of society, but not like the military. There's something about being thrown onto a ship. And sent on to the other side of the world, and you're literally, literally living with these people twenty four seven. You and you're spending more time with them than you are with your own family. There's no way that you can recreate that in any other environment in American society, because at the end of the day, as a police officer, you're still going home at the end of your shift. Uh, shift, but you know, in the military, going home meant you went from the flight deck down to your stateroom, where you're still, you know, in my case as an officer, I was down there with eight other guys. And, uh, you know, and some of the other sailors were spent in a room full of 60 guys. I mean, you're never alone <laughs> in the military. You're never alone. How and, did you, and, but it builds a camaraderie that you can't recreate anywhere
0: else. But you found that camaraderie you mentioned to a degree uh, as a police yeah. officer in Washington, D.C. How, how mm-hmm. did your drinking progress as you switched from the military into being a corrections officer to being a police officer? Was there problematic drinking that was popping up at that time?
1: Yeah, so let me backtrack a little bit because there's – in most alcoholics and addicts' lives that are in recovery, there, there's two pivotal moments that I'm finding that people have, and it was certainly true of me. Let me backtrack to Iceland a little bit. Now, remember I was telling you that on flight status, very, very restrictive um, uh, ways of living your life. A lot of people don't know this, but when you fly in the – in the navy, I can only speak for the Navy, but – We weren't allowed to take aspirin. If you took aspirin, you had to report it, and there was a good chance that you were going to get grounded because the idea being that if you're having to take aspirin or Tylenol, then that might be indicative of another problem. So we need to take a look at that. So very, very restrictive. Now, when I went to my – this was a short tour. So when my wife and I went to Iceland, this – yeah, Keflavik, Iceland is where we were stationed and because that was her her sea tour uh, because it was a remote-duty station – and we were part of both of us were part of the staff of the the base there. Now I'm not on flight works right, so now I'm not flying in Iceland, so I don't have all these restrictions on me. Uh. And so the drinking started to progress a bit more. Um, and part of that was the isolation. I felt, you know, I actually I had a little bit a little bit of bitterness. I have to be honest with you. I had just spent three years at sea. And for a lot of people in the Navy, your shore tour is kind of like a break. You can go to someplace a little bit nicer, maybe go to maybe postgraduate school, you know, do kind of like a little bonus round type of, of thing. Whereas I'm like, they sent me to Iceland. <laughs> They're like, well, yeah, but we'll let you spend time with your wife. Okay. Yeah. But I'm on a, you know, Iceland's a beautiful place. I love the, the Icelanders and all that, but it is a rock out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and the sun doesn't come up half the year. And uh, yeah, that's, the- that's a tough draw. Progress. Yeah, it was, uh, but there was a, you know, uh, if you're Icelandic and I'm listening, look, I love you guys. I love (laughs) the place. It was not you, it was me, okay? And when we we were there, (laughs) so the drinking progressed a bit more because I could, right? Where are you drinking in Iceland?
0: Is there a tavern? Are you drinking at home? How does that go?
1: Oh, no, on the base. On the base. Okay. Uh, Oh, okay. Iceland's one of those places where if you were American, you had to live on the base. Okay. So we lived on the base. And... It's interesting because my office that I worked in was across the street from the base housing you're in. And then across from the street from that was the officer's club. So it was like this triangle. Uh-huh. Wake up, go to work, work all day, go to the officer's club, drink, stumble home, get up and do it all over again. And you do that for a couple of years.
0: Is your wife saying anything about you drinking at this point or is she so busy? Yeah,
1: yeah. It was starting to be like, you know, hey, you're starting to drink more. Um, why are you doing that? But there was a, there was a key moment, a moment I will never forget. And I my net, so i'm we're living in junior officer housing, and so all the junior officers are in this this one building. and my you know I had an Air Force guy on one side and then uh, a marine guy, a marine captain on the other side. And this marine captain, um he was a very cultured sort of guy. And what I mean by that is you know he liked to read literature. um you know it was it was interesting because he was a coat and tie kind of guy and and what I mean by that is like if he invited you to hang out at his house, he was in a coat and tie, and he would send you an email saying, um, I'm requesting that you be in a coat and tie. And you're like, dude, I'm just hanging out at your house. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Coat and tie. Right. So <laughs> I don't know what that's all about, but that's but that's the way it was, right? So yeah. He invites us over. And what I didn't mention earlier, remember I was talking about all the World War II veterans? Yes. They were into – their thing was men drink whiskey and beer and women drink wine so from the earliest days i'd never had anything other than whiskey and beer because i was always told that's what men drink and women drink wine so i I'd, ne- I'd never had wine in my life ever so we end up at this guy's house and he's very cultured and you know we're listening to classical music and talking about literature as if i know anything about literature <laughs> and you know but i'm i'm doing my best to play along and this guy starts pouring wine red wine and and i'm thinking to myself oh my goodness Boy, this is extreme. We're drinking wine. What what guy drinks wine? And it was a Cabernet. I, I know now that it was a Cabernet. And I remember drinking this. And I for those of you that are listening, that are looking for a PhD thesis to work on, maybe you can study what the chemical interaction is between uh, the grapes in red wine and uh, alcohol. Because uh, I, you know, at the at the end of my drinking career, and when I go to AA meetings now, I hear a lot of people talk about how their drink of choice is Cabernet red wine
2: yeah.
1: a lot. I mean, I hear a lot of people say that. So there's, there's a correlation. So there you go. Here's your uh, PhD thesis uh, <laughs> right there. But anyway, so this guy gives me a Cabernet and from the minute it hit my lips, uh, Pete, don't you know, it was like the world opened up, you know, I, I think for a lot of ac- alcoholics and addicts, it's like you, you realize when alcohol was the answer, and then you also remember when it was killing you, okay? But this was the front end of it, mm. and that was it hit my lips, and there was something about Cabernet that it was like a different, relaxing buzz that was more mellow than anything I'd ever experienced. And it was—I remember—I mean, I, I remember to this day that feeling where I'm like, ah, this is the answer to everything, right here. And I turned to my wife, and I'm like wow, I really like this. Catherine. why did you never tell me about this? And she looked at me and she said, you told me that only women drink wine. And I said, you've never listened to me in my life, our lives up until this point. Why would you listen to me about this? <laughs> and so, so that became it. And so red wine actually became my drink of choice from that day forward. And then it, it
0: progressed from there. We'll get back to this conversation in a second. But right now, a word from our sponsors. But that was a major turning point for you.
2: Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Now, um, those of you that are listening, uh, what you need to know is addiction is progressive over a period of time, um, that meaning frequency and the amount. And so the amounts at the time, what I, you know, what I thought was a lot of drinking at the time really was not what it was later uh it became more of just a way to relax in the evening and the and and again I'm still in the military so yeah. that it was and it by the way in Iceland you know the Iceland remember this is viking stock these are the old vikings that moved to this island and they they drank a lot they drank they liked vodka and they drank a lot of vodka and so we would do that and it did nothing seemed out of the ordinary because i i I actually don't even know back then if i was even really drinking more than the people around there was a lot of drinking going on now This is where the career shift took place. So I'm in Iceland, and I know that I want to go into law enforcement. But this is, you know, for the kids out there, this is like pre... We had internet, but it wasn't like it is now. And uh, this is back when you would apply for jobs. You actually had to go to (laughs) the place that you're applying for a job and get a paper. I know this seems archaic, but that's the way it was. You had to fill out a paper application and deliver it to somebody. And then they would call you back and then say if they called you back, you know, can you come in for a written exam, psychological assessment, um, whatever, whatever it was that they needed you to do. So in Iceland, they had, um, what was called the rotator. So on, uh, Friday evening, they would have a plane that would leave a military airlift plane that would leave Iceland, go to Norfolk, Virginia, and then Sunday evening, it would come back. And so there was this rotator, right? It was a cargo plane. And so I would, uh, fly back on Friday evening from Iceland and think think of my life at this point. I'm flying from Iceland to Norfolk, Virginia. I would rent a car and I would go up and down the East Coast of the United States filling out applications to put oh. into various departments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then I would fly back Sunday night to Iceland.
0: How for, long is that flight?
1: Oh, uh, that's six hours. I okay.
0: Think, okay. I remember okay. correctly. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. But I was doing this every week, right? Yeah. Twice on the weekend. And so uh might have been more than that, I don't remember. But it was it was a long flight. And by the way, it's in a cargo plane. I'm not in an I'm not in an airliner. I'm in a cargo plane.
2: Yeah. Air
1: Force cargo plane. And so we I would drive up and down the East Coast and I would, you know, apply and then then I would get, you know, if they responded, Hey, can you come back for a written exam? So I would fly back the, the following weekend and in, in different departments, mind you, and I would take a written exam or a psychological exam or an interview or whatever they would want. And so I'm going through this process. And by the way, by the way, one of those trips, I my home of record was Tampa, Florida. Remember, you know, I'm from that area. And in the, the military, you have what's known as a home of record because you're you're moving so much. So even though I'd lived all over the place and had lived in Virginia, I'm still a Florida resident at this point. Um and so when I had on one of my trips back to uh, to do this, I'm visiting my younger brother. And we had white pages. If you remember those, the yellow pages oh, and the white yeah. pages. And I'm going through – I'm sitting in my brother's house, and we're going through the phone book, and I'm looking at police agencies that I'm going to apply to. And I get to F and Federal Bureau of Investigation. And I told my brother, I said, man, wouldn't that be funny? The FBI. Can you imagine me working for the FBI? And he's like, ah, oh, they could never hire you. And, and I just – as a joke, I was like, Yeah, but I wonder how – like." far I could get into the process but they just laugh at me and they didn't tell me to go away. She goes, well, you should apply. So I did. And uh, you know, and on one of these trips, the FBI said, Hey, why don't you come on in for uh, a written exam? And so I flew to Norfolk, rented a car, drove all the way to Florida, took the written exam, which I completely thought I bombed. And I thought, well, that was a waste. So imagine Norfolk, Virginia to Tampa, Florida, ride—and right. then drove all, right. all the way back. And and I uh, – so driving all the way down, drive all the way back just to get on a plane to fly to Iceland, okay, <laughs> just to come back the next week. I, it's insane, the stuff that, that we, I was doing back then. It was just uh, – but it showed the motivation and I – it just uh, – the drivenness that that I had when I was doing that. And I remember uh, – and this is kind of a segueing of the story a little bit. I remember at one point my mom called me. And she said, hey, uh, listen, there's a letter – a letter came in the mail from the FBI. And my mom, my mom was like, why is the FBI talking to you? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, know, I don't even know if I told her that I had applied to the FBI. And she's like, "You know, what should I do with this? You know, I was like all well, this deeper. that what should I do with this letter from the FBI? Get an attorney? I said, oh, no, no, no. I know what that is. I know what that is. I took an exam. And I, I failed it. Mom, I did horrible on that. Uh, oh, oh, I'll tell you what. I'll open it and I'll read it to you. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was so embarrassed. Like, Mom, I know I did horrible on that exam. Please don't embarrass me. And, of course, Mom being Mom, she opens it up. She reads it and it says, congratulations, you've passed the phase one exam. And my Mom, you're screwing with me. And she goes, no, this is what it. Do you want me to send it to you? I'm like, are you serious? I passed that, that exam? I passed it? She said, yeah, that's what the letter says. Oh, okay. So keep that in the back of your mind. Okay. So I didn't hear from the FBI, but I, there's a phase one a phase two. This is phase one, which is, in my opinion, the harder of the two. Um, so I passed it. Now, meanwhile, I get out of the Navy. I discharge from the Navy, go to Norfolk, Virginia. My wife had orders to um, a base in Maryland. So we knew we were going to be in the D.C. Maryland area because that's where she was being assigned next. And um, I, to my surprise, I didn't realize how difficult it was to get a law enforcement job. You know, that kind of showed my ego and, you know, like what I was thinking of myself. I thought, hey, you know, I've got a – I had a master's degree by then. I'm a lieutenant commander select in the Navy. I was a helicopter pilot. You know, obviously, I'm God's gift to you, right? <laughs> you should be honored that I'd come to work at your place. And I found out that's not the case, and nobody really gave a damn about it or my background and and, it, and it's actually very very hard to get a job and so as I get back it, it really just bothered me that I was unemployed <laughs> it, just, it just did and uh, I was like I can't not work and so I took the fr- I just read somewhere hey they're looking for corrections officers down here at the sheriff's office and so I took it and so I, I worked for about six eight months as a, a corrections officer and um, what an experience that was holy cow what was it, uh, what learned was it a drinking lot.
0: like there? Uh, it increased,
1: absolutely yeah. increased.
0: And was, it, was was there kind of like because I look at your career and, and and you start to soar, but you mentioned that you know you probably were in love with being a corrections officer. It was a short stint, and you you were unhappy with what you said being unemployed. Uh, yeah. So was there like a depression? I wasn't
1: unhappy with the job. I actually liked the job. Okay. In a lot of respects, but. Um, uh, but it didn't pay anything. <laughs> it didn't pay anything. And By the way,
0: I'm imagining the guys that you were working with, right? Your coworkers, yeah. Uh, your colleagues—they're probably not as evolved as you. Not as not as what? Evolved as you, and and not evolved. Yeah, not having the experience. Not not trying to get you to go out and you know, uh, talk poorly about guys that are corrections officers, but you, you just seem like a guy who was destined for more.
1: Yeah, I I think so. I looking back on it. Yeah, I think so. I think it was apparent to them and to me, well, and to me, I I knew, I knew that this was going to be a temporary thing. And to be honest with you, even when I got to the police department, I knew it was going to be a a temporary thing because my sights were set on, um, going federal, um, law enforcement. Now, uh you'll hear as we go on in this story though, I'll circle back to that, that I think the best time in my life, law enforcement wise, was it, this period, believe it or not. Uh I loved it. I I'm a people person, like you're a people person. I love the engagement. I, I love uh not knowing what you're gonna get into every single day, the excitement of the job, um, which I lost. Really hey, hold on one second. Oops, yeah. Now they got the blower up. These guys are killing me.
0: I can't hear anything.
1: Oh, you can't? Okay, good. Um, I'm sorry, you're going to have to do all this editing.
0: No, you're fine. So, uh,
1: yeah, I think that they – it was interesting because this is where I kind of learned people skills, as I mentioned to you, verbal Uh, skills, and psychological skills with people. And and let me just kind of – and I haven't talked about this in a long time. It's interesting, but I think it kind of fits into the conversation a bit that when i was there i think everybody just wondered why the hell i was there they're like so let me get this straight this job which you really don't even need a high school degree to do but you have a master's degree and you were a pilot in the navy and you're a lieutenant commander department head like why are you doing this job yeah that's what i was getting at i was trying to be nice about it but (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, and i think that it's that was what a lot of people were thinking right and it was uh, and I, but you know, what's interesting is that a lot of people think that way, but the, you I, I can't even put into words how many of the skills that I learned in that environment I use later in my oh. career as an agent mm. that you can't, pay, you can't go to training to get, you can't pay for that. It is, it was immeasurable. And when I was a DC cop, the, where we worked alone, I've most of my patrolling was done alone, and the ability to talk to every single type of person you can imagine at the bottom of their, their life, um, you know, being in jail um, where they've got nothing to lose, and me being able to convince them to do things that they don't want to do, and I don't have weapons to do it. I have to convince you, okay, like I want you to move from that cell to that cell, yeah. and you don't want to go, and you got nothing better to do than to screw with me all day long, but I need you to move. And the, to, to develop the verbal skills to get you to do something you don't want to do is invaluable. And I don't know where else you learn that than working in a jail. But what's kind of interesting yeah. is it, where, where I worked. And this is, then you learn psychology with people, right? So um, in the, the the jail that I worked, they had like pods. And so they would have like a, a pod with 40 guys and then another pod with 40. And so they have all these blocks and we would do these rounds. And so you would go in and you would do rounds in these blocks, but the doors would lock behind you, and it would be you unarmed with 40 guys in, in a block. And uh, they're supposed – in theory, supposed to be watching you on camera as you're going. So if there's a problem, then come out, they can yeah. get to you. Right. Well, <laughs> people being people, sometimes they would forget, or they go to the bathroom or whatever, and they – and you're locked in there, and they forget that you're there. Jesus. And. Yeah. Oh my God. You want to, you, you if you want to wet your pants, um, <laughs> there's nothing like being in a situation where you need to leave the block and you're waving at the camera and the door's not opening. Oh,
0: uh, and, and can the and guys you, tell that they, like, like, that yeah.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Oh, they. My God. And you, now you have 40 men who some of them are waiting trial for murder. Um, <laughs> there's gang bangers or, and they know, that the people in the control booth don't know that you're there. And you know that they know that they don't think that they don't, didn't remember that you were there. You want to talk about like stressful feeling. Yeah. Right. But there's a way, but you learn to work with co- commands. There's a way that you carry yourself. There's a way that you, um, you just the just the way that you carry yourself. You come across as though you are somebody that can handle yourself in no matter what situation. So, uh, just kind of a little funny side. I haven't even thought about this story in a long, long time. But the the prisoners didn't know that when we would work in in our control booth, just the way the acoustics were in that jail, you could hear everything. Everything that was being said in the block, you could hear where we were. Now they didn't know that. And I remember um, one night, you know, just working overnight and some of the guys were talking about how they were you know how they hated all of us and and sometimes they're like you know i'm going to kill this guy they would talk they would openly talk about how they're going to kill you (laughs) (laughs) so the next time that you feel like you have a stressful day at work just imagine that was my environment and so one day one day they start talking about me (laughs) they're talking about what they're gonna they're gonna kill me they're gonna rape me yes they they talk about how they're gonna rape you and then (laughs) kill you and yeah, this is uh, just a Tuesday at work, right? <laughs> and um, but there, but I remember hearing this so other guy. The, these two guys are talking, and one of these guys, you know, the, you know Van Meter, uh, he's an asshole. We're gonna kill him, we're gonna, and, and this other guy goes, "Man, I wouldn't do that if I was you." Well, why not? And I don't know, man. He he's a crazy ass Navy SEAL, and and I remember sitting there, and I looked at the guy who was working with I was like, Navy SEAL. Uh-huh. Uh, here, you learn. You learn not to give a lot of information about yourself to the prisoners. Yeah. But I guess somewhere either I slipped up and said that I'd been in the navy, or somebody else said that I'd been in the navy. That was it. He said I was in the navy. Okay, that was it. That's all it was said. Then they they were trying to figure out why this uh, white you know at that time small I was smaller then than I am now small white guy comes in here and you know can. Be commanding and you know command the place, and I'm doing so with with confidence and they're trying to figure out why it when clearly these forty guys could take me out in you know ten seconds, but why is it that I have so much uh, confidence about myself and they they drew the conclusion that I must know stuff that <laughs> I must know how to like i can I must be like Bruce Lee and I can take them all out in ten seconds and so they came to the conclusion Well, it must be some sort of a Special Forces Navy SEAL kind of guy because otherwise there's no way in hell I would walk through there with the confidence that I had. And I was looking at my, my buddy that I was working with, and he just looked at me and he goes, roll with it, man.
2: Roll with roll it. With he goes,
1: it. <laughs> the, f- the fact that they think that is actually keeping you safe. And, I, and I, that was the first time I was like, you know what? That's actually a very good point. As long as they think I'm some sort of a Navy SEAL, that's actually good for me because it prevents me from having issues down the road, and that that mindset became important later. You know, like when I was in the FBI. You know, one of the things at the FBI that I was important. I used to tell newer agents when I would and when I taught at the academy, I used to tell the new agents that it's not so much what we can do; it's so much what the public thinks we can do. Huh. And don't ever ruin that because you can always use that to your advantage. But I learned that. Uh, in the jail, a very important lesson, and then later that probably kept me from dying on the streets of D.C. Because, like I mentioned, we're patrolling by ourselves, and the the fact it, it's it's really how you carry yourself on the street. Not necessarily that that you can take out everybody on the street. It's just they think that you can take them out, and that prevents a lot of trouble. I learned that prevents a lot of trouble from from occurring. How,
0: how very important you, lessons. Yeah, I mean that's a ton of, of important lessons and a ton of important things to take, to take from this. How did this stuff start to? I guess maybe was it always at the forefront when the when the drinking became extreme, or did you lose some of some of that command you're talking about? So I would say during this
1: period is when it started to escalate. But in the beginning, so the, the reasoning behind the drinking started to shift a bit. And here's what I mean by that. So um, very, when you go from local law enforcement to federal law enforcement, they're very different animals, very different animals. And the threats change. So when I was in the, the corrections and then certainly in the police department, you're, you're, this is shift work, days, evenings, midnights. And being the new guy, forget about days you're just doing evenings and midnights you know if if you're you're the new guy if it's a holiday you're working it if it's a overtime you're working it if it's uh you know my wife used to call me the vampire i never saw daylight during <laughs> this period it was always evenings mid and if when i got to the police department the only time i saw daylight is when i was going to court and then you would leave court and then go back to the street and work at night so the the shift work is very damaging to your whole physiological system you can't get a circadian rhythm down you can't um, you're not your sleep cycles, which are very, very important. I know now back then you, I, I, that whole period of my life, I don't remember sleeping very much. And then by the way, we ended up having a new kid. I had, that's when I had, my son was born. So any parent out there knows that you're not getting a lot of sleep when you have a young child now throw on shift work on top yeah. of that. Now, when I moved, uh, so I eventually took, I decided I was going to take whatever the first police department came up was in, in the area that I was working. Uh, that was Metropolitan uh, uh, Metropolitan uh, Police Department in Washington, D.C. So I went there, and uh, that kind of – this is the mid-'90s, so height of the crack epidemic, and we, we were averaging like a, a shooting per week when I was there. So imagine 100% adrenaline dump 100% of the time. Okay, there were no slow days in D.C. It was man with gun, man with gun, naked man with knife. Another man with a gun, domestics uh, interspersed with traffic stops, which was usually gangbangers that you're pulling over. Uh, it was rough. I mean, it was a rough, rough department to work in. And so, imagine what that does to your your physiology when you when you have your body's not designed to have that sort of adrenaline dumped into it every single day. That's where, if I had to pinpoint the escalation and huh. the drinking, that was really where it started because. You start, you know, it's not like you come home at night. Well, hey, honey, how was your day at work? Oh, great. I I was late on a project, and my boss wanted to talk to me, and she just rambles on and on and on. She frustrates me. Uh, Good night. Well, how was your day? Oh, well, I I got into three chases, and I had a guy pull a knife on me, wrestled him down. Oh, by the way, we we picked up a dead baby at this, and, you know, but otherwise, just a typical Tuesday. Have a good night, honey. Uh, That's not the way it works, right? It's it's a lot of trauma every single day, and the way that what I believe the only way I could learn to sleep or could sleep would be to drink a little bit, and that's what I did, and those of you that are listening, I have since found out that it's absolutely not true. Alcohol does not help you sleep. In fact, uh, detracts from it, but I didn't know that back then,
0: so that's anything, what I was anything doing. Anything to turn off the lights at that point, right? Right. Because you're not coping otherwise in your job. I mean, you want to talk about an adventure, a a dark adventure. If there's one instance you can pinpoint uh, in that experience working as a D.C. cop, I don't want to get us too far off track, but what was it? Mm -hmm. Is there one defining moment of that craziness, what it was like to work on the streets in D.C.?
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh, my God. It was every day. It was like 15 years compressed into about two, two and a half years. Um, uh, There wasn't any one experience. Again, I I think it was the good and the bad coupled with, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'll give you three maybe short, short instances of like, when I knew this was like joke time was over. Like, this is real. I remember being, I was the first officer on the scene at Washington Hospital Center. And what had happened was, a patient was being brought in with some sort of a wound. I don't even know what the wound was, but the guy was brought in, and he was in, in part of a, a gang conflict in, in DC. They were called crews at the time. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're gangs, but they call them crews in DC. And they got into a dispute. And whoever he was fighting with decided to end it. Knew that this guy was going to the hospital, and so he goes into the lobby of the hospital, puts a gun to his head, and blows his head off. And wow. so this guy's head is like all over the lobby of. Uh, Washington Hospital Center, and I show up, and now I didn't know that I, you know, we just got a call for shots fired in in this place, and so I I come into so the this lobby. guy murdered him in the lobby, yeah yeah, he just blew his head off, and I'm walking around the lobby, and I'm walking in this stuff, and I I actually didn't know what it was, and then one of the nurses had to point out to me that I was walking through this guy's brain matter is what it was, uh, didn't even know it, yeah, and that's when I looked around and I'm like. Oh my God. Wow.
0: How do you, wow. keep move, how do you keep moving through something like that? Uh,
1: You just turn it off. You, you, you just, uh, you know, the thing is that you're so uh, in law enforcement, you know, it's not television. You know, there's a lot that you, you, you become very aware that everything that you're doing is a case, right? What I'm doing, I have to document everything that I'm seeing, smelling, hearing taught, you know, what, everything that you hear it becomes very mechanical like uh other people are obviously concerned about their safety so a you have to make sure the guy's not still there that we're not this is not an ongoing scene remember i'm first officer of the scene right yeah and then you have people that and this is the strange thing is people act really weird when this happens so obviously something traumatic happened. this guy's brain is all over the the lobby of this place But I remember distinctly, like, there was a doctor and a nurse, and they're coming, like, the the nurse wants her purse, and the doctor wants his wallet. And that's all they care about. They're like, do you understand that this is a crime scene? You understand what just happened here? Yeah, but that's my wallet. I need my my wallet over there. Oh, That's my purse over there. And you're like, look, I don't give a damn about your purse.
2: Yeah.
1: And, And they're just focused on, hey, I need my purse. I need my purse, my purse. And so people act really weird. It's like they don't, they can't grasp the significance of what just happened. Um and then you know that you have to document every little thing that goes on and preserve it until you can turn the scene over to somebody else. So it becomes very uh, mechanical in that way. Now that creates problems in your personal life because when traumatic things happen in your personal life, with your wife or you know what's important to your wife and your kids, you know the fact that um, you know, like I give the example, my wife might come home and say, Oh, my, I went to a meeting and my boss was late and she just rambled on for two hours. And, you know, and I was going to pull my hair out and, you know, and, and, and when you're a cop, you come home and you think, really, really, that's your biggest problem today. Like, yeah. You downplay everybody else's problems because their problems aren't as big as the problems you're dealing with. And at the time, and that creates a lot of interpersonal and,
0: relationships. And at the time you're, you're, you're drinking a lot. And so that's how you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're that's how you're coping. What is a what are you yeah. drinking i mean how much how much are you drinking on a typical night towards this period
1: um in the grand scheme of things it it didn't seem like a whole lot i might have maybe three glasses of wine and half a pint of vodka okay and it's like <laughs> yeah. i became a chemist like that that was like the mixture that would help me sleep uh-huh. Um, you know and <laughs> it's like you you become your own scientist at that point oh There's yeah the i'm the, the we're
0: worst chemist in the world right yeah
1: yeah. And then, you know, so that it, it seemed to kind of settle me out and it seemed to kind of like mellow me out and I could go to sleep. Now, uh, later, at some point, I get hired by the FBI. Now, remember, I had told you that my home record was in Tampa, Florida, mm-hmm. right? Now, I get out of the Navy and my home record now is Baltimore, Maryland, because I'm living in Maryland at this point. You know, I'm working in D.C., but I'm living in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't know was that I needed to get my package for the FBI transferred to the Baltimore office because you hire through an office. And so I didn't hear anything from the FBI for a long time, uh, like maybe four or five years. Didn't hear anything. And finally I called up I was like, hey, you know what's the status of this application? And they figured out, oh, wait a minute. You're living in Maryland. No, the package needs to come up to, to Baltimore. Well, they did that. And one day I'm out on the street. It, this is one of the few times I worked uh, – the, the uh, day shift and this is when cell phones were starting to, to come out and one day i'm I'm doing a traffic stop and i got these guys is like four deep in a car you know gangbangers and i'm by myself and the phone rings and i pick it up and and it's like hey this is uh mike uh, mike yeah this is the fbi and i'm thinking my buddies are screwing with me yeah and i said yeah fbi and they go no 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 really this is so-and-so from the baltimore office and uh, hey do you have a minute i said well yeah, kind of. I'm on a traffic stop right now, and they're like, "Oh, wait a minute! You've been stopped by the police?" Uh. <laughs> I said, I "said No, I am the police, and I've stopped somebody else." And they're like, "What?" I said, "Yeah, look, I'm a cop. I've I've got a car stop." And um, I, no offense, but can we can we get to the point? I got I got like four guys here stopped, and they're like, "Where are you?" And I said, "I'm in Washington D.C." Wait, are you a DC cop? Yeah, and they said. Oh my God, what the hell are you doing talking to us if you've got – I said, well, you called me. (laughs) (laughs) What am I doing talking to you? You called me. What do you want? And they're like, oh, we'll make this quick. Hey, can you get to Baltimore next week on such and such date uh, for your phase two? And uh, can you do that? Can you come to the – oh, yeah, okay. So I did, and I went up and I did my my phase two, and um, I won't bore you with the the process, but eventually I got hired and went into the FBI. And that's really where – uh, I guess sort of the the next phase of the development of alcoholism started. If you kind of want me to roll through yeah, that, yeah, talk quick.
0: to yeah, talk to me about because I don't want to keep you here forever. We got like another twenty five minutes. Um, yeah, yeah. What is uh, that like? That next phase that brings you uh, to your knees in two thousand and twelve.
1: All right. So, what happened from that point? is and I and I want to start off by saying this is not meant to badmouth anybody, it's not to attack my previous organization, um, because, as you know, and I know, uh, addiction ultimately is about you. It's not about situations, it's about how you respond to situations if that makes sense mm-hmm. and the I had mentioned earlier that federal law enforcement, the FBI in particular, is a very different type of law enforcement than what I was doing. And I'm going to caveat that with saying that I enjoyed being a police officer. I enjoyed work. If I could get paid, <laughs> when I was getting paid towards the end of my career, uh, if I could get paid back and go back and work patrol, I would do it today. I love patrol. I'm one of those weird guys that just enjoy. I just enjoy in, engaging the public. You get to federal law enforcement; it's a very different animal, and it's very long-term investigations. It's very, um, you know, you have cases that. You know, I started when I got to Dallas as my first office, and and I I started and ten years later. I'm still working the same case. I yeah, mean, and it, there's the, how much interaction
0: term. is there with people? Uh,
1: it depends on the case. Okay, it depends on the case, and actually, a lot of times, uh, the case is you don't you're not actually having any interaction with the subject because half the time these people don't even know that you're looking at them. Yeah, you know, it's now it's interactions with attorneys, and uh, it, if you're working a white collar case, banks and subpoenas and. Uh, other law enforcement agencies, a lot of interaction there, but not with the subject. Uh, and I miss that actually. I missed the day-to-day, um, you know, talking to the person and building the rapport with them, and uh, and all of that. And you you kind of miss that to a large extent in the FBI. And the types of people that that, that come into the FBI are very different than the, the people that go into uh, police work. You know, in the FBI, uh, some of the people are highly highly educated, you know, which is great on one end, but you also have to remember that many of these people have never, when you're j- talking about bad guys, the, the people that come into the FBI are, for the most part, are people that were very high in their class in high school, very high in college. I mean, PhDs, you, you get all those kinds of people. And in working with the bad guys, most of the FBI agents would never even go near anybody. You know, like they're the if you saw one of these people on the street, you would go to the other, other side of the street. Whereas you know, cops usually gravitate towards that. Yeah. very different mindset, and uh, that that hit me, you know, right off the bat. And because they're long term investigations, you know, things that I was making life and death decisions as a police officer every single day, just on my own. Um, the only time you could talk to a supervisor was after you took action, and then you would you would go and you talk to your supervisor, whereas in the bureau, everything had to be done up front and you know I joke about it, but it 's not far from the truth. I felt like I had to get ten letters of approval to go to the bathroom huh. and that was just like it was tough for me to accept that it was like I went from freedom and engagement to restriction oversight. Uh, there was a lot of politics that started to, to coming in the office, which was completely foreign to me. Um, the mentality I had, uh, you know in the in my entire career was you know, particularly in law enforcement, you know, we are about solving crimes. and if the evidence led to my mother committing the crime, then I would be the first one to uh, 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 to arrest my mother. Whereas, you know, in the bureau it was kind of like kind of pick and choose who you're you're gonna go. Uh, target those types of things so those things sort of just settle in with me I'm like oh huh, not sure that I really like this yeah. but, I mean, but if you you gotta remember but at this point I'm like in my early mid-30s by then I've got a couple of kids and you know life stage reality sets in that you're like okay the pay for a law enforcement job is a good paying job and my wife had stopped working full-time in the Navy gave that career up to come support me in my dream and I remember having you know within the first two, three years, like, Hey, you know, let's talk about this. I really enjoyed what I was doing over here. I think I want to go back to that. And It was, well, too bad. Yeah. Too bad. We're here. Um, You're the sole provider for the, what, you know, for us and the kids. And uh, your happiness is really of no concern of mine. Um, You're, you have responsibilities. (laughs) And I was like, okay, we call that the golden handcuffs where you kind of like at that life point where, you know, it's not about you and it's not about and, and there's reasons why you do that but uh yeah i was not happy with uh the, the bureau i was starting to see something i was starting to see some corruption i was starting to see um you know one of those and i think part of it with me is i'm a real you too, know, that i take an oath to the constitution um you know i take all that stuff seriously like very very seriously and there were some people that i worked with i'm like i'm not sure so sure you take you're taking this as seriously as i am and you're getting a little loose with and i don't agree with all those but i was getting really disenchanted with some of the stuff that i was seeing but but i felt trapped and that's where the drinking start started to take if i could really pinpoint the progress like serious progression it was during that period so what started to happen Drinking wise it, it became um now granted it was a lot of pressure too. I was working some pretty big cases, pretty high visibility cases. Um I was working some undercover operations. Um the way that these things work, you have undercover agents that work undercover obviously, but what people don't realize and they never show on T V is behind the scenes there's all the case agents and the, the people that really run the case. And that was me. I was the one that and I because I was in a position where I had been attached to an undercover operation from the minute I left the Academy actually went, was thrown into, back in those days, it was a healthcare fraud. uh, This is pre nine 11. So Mm -hmm. um, we worked things other than terrorism. It's different these days, but back then I was working a healthcare fraud, um, uh, undercover operation, but I, you know, so I was the guy that was doing all the proposals. I was doing all the relations with uh, headquarters, uh, the budgets, the, the money, the, you know, all, all those running the sources, all that kind of stuff, the behind the scenes stuff, which is very technical, very detailed and, and a lot of pressure. In fact, there's anybody that's going to get jammed up in the operation it's that guy because mm. there's, you know, cause you're being audited financially and we're throwing $300,000 around. Like it's like, that's just every day Yeah, and you're being, you have to be accountable to that. So, but I'd learned how to do that. And so when I went to my next squad, it was, Hey, aren't you that guy that, didn't you run that operation over there? Well, we're going to do an operation. Okay, so every <laughs> squad I went to, I was like that guy. Yeah, and um, and and that's not to mention my own cases that I'm working, and you know, it's so just a lot of stress, and so the the drinking started. You know, unhappiness, disenchantment, but a lot of stress on top of that, and then the drinking just progresses, and you know. That if it snuck up on you overnight, you would notice it, but it doesn't sneak up on you overnight. It takes years for this to progress, or at least it did in my case, to the point to where um, one day you wake up and you're like, holy shit, I drank a lot. Now, my wife had noticed this. She had noticed it early on. It um, started unknown, unknowns to me at the time going to Al-Anon meetings. And then it was getting to the hey, you really need to stop drinking. Mm. I started putting on a lot of weight. I was starting to have health issues, and and uh, and I'd always been somebody that was very conscientious
0: about my health. And so How much you drink like, on like on a real bad day? Uh,
1: it could be as much as a liter and a half of wine, um, with some vodka or a beer put on top of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that would just be like daily, you know, stuff, which is a lot. I yeah. mean, that's a lot. Well, that's a, lot of drinking.
0: For the, you know, yeah. like, but that's what we do. I mean, and, and, and yeah. we get used to that. And so that becomes normal. And that's bad news for us and for anybody around us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it takes its toll on your health. And I was having, um, you know, health issues that I should not, you know, somebody that, that came from sort of like the physical fitness background that I was coming from, I shouldn't have been having those issues. And it was all attributed to my drinking. And now I'm going to point out also, remember, uh, I said that law enforcement has a culture of drinking. Well, the FBI does too, mm. and you know, so to in the early part of it, it really wasn't noticeable because it's you know people don't think of it, but the FBI is a drinking culture as well. All the federal agencies are, and so to a certain extent, it was just I was doing what everybody else was doing. But then it just got worse and worse. And I won't go through all the the details and the the. The, the lot because I don't know that it's really
0: relevant other than it progressed. And it was there worse. one major instance where the bottom fell out?
1: Yeah, well, the, the beginning of the end is is this where you know I mentioned my wife was bringing it up and then she would threaten. And anybody that goes through addiction, you have the threats, you know, uh, you know, and, and her not understanding it, it was you know you don't love me, you don't love the kids, you don't love the job anymore. What are you doing? To, what are you doing to us? Type of thing, which I know now has nothing to do with it, but. Uh, She was going to Al-Anon, and she kept threatening me, you need to go to AA meetings. And I started going to AA meetings in Texas. It didn't mean anything to me. um, Didn't think anything of it. Uh, They gave me a big book. I I have no idea where that big book is to this day, but that was my first introduction. That's probably 2003 or so Mm -hmm. that I was first introduced to it. But then, um, as time went on, uh, I came back to the East Coast, and I finally had a coworker confront me. And that was the first time uh, anybody other than my family confront me about it. And he's like, dude, every time you come to work, you smell like alcohol. You know that, right? Now, I wasn't drinking in the morning. Mm-hmm. I wasn't drinking. It was it was just he what he's smelling is the night before. Sure. And it's like, look, you can't, you, you can't do this. You can't you can't smell like alcohol. And at a certain point, I transferred down to the Academy. And that's when it was pointed out to me again, and it's like, hey, look, you can't work, you can't be here teaching and smell like alcohol, because yeah. you're on display here at the academy. You're in front of students, and we have VIPs that come. To, you can't, can't have that. And the guy that confronted me there, um, I just knew he was going to run to the boss. That was just kind of the guy he was. I knew, and I knew that. And so I went running to the boss to, <laughs> to get to, you know, I go into agent mode, like I'm going to cover up. and I'm going to get into the <laughs> EAP program, and like a good agent. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any intention of getting well. I just have intentions to get this guy off my back. Yeah. And I don't want my boss on my back. And so uh, I ended up in uh, detox number one and treatment number one at that point. Because I figured that that's how I could protect myself. It was all about protection.
0: What year is this? Like point? 2011, 2010? Uh, Ballpark. It.
1: it was, I think, 2010, okay. yeah. Right. So you're so hanging on in
0: 2010 to... Yeah, because because that's what I did, right? You fight and claw to keep this existence going. Um, yeah, where ultimately, people are calling you out for smelling like alcohol, because that's just you're now that 24 hour ooze. Right? Like that's Yeah, kinda, you're just yeah. sweating it out. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. Just sweating it out of your body. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It, it's, it's about 2010, I
1: would say, and you go and to, you went to, go to the, treatment, go to treatment, right. And it didn't take because I was and for those of you are listening, I was not ready. Yeah, I, I was not. My goal was to get people off my back. I developed a back problem, and I wanted to fix my back problem. I did not want to fix my drinking problem. My, back, you know, you were on my back, and I wanted you off my back. So, uh, go back. Shockingly, didn't stop drinking, but then it started to escalate. And if you could, if you could look at a graph, it was a steep escalation at this point. And with that deep escalation, and by then, people like the word was out. my boss had um, told everybody that I was in treatment, which she's not allowed to do, but she but it doesn't matter. she did. And now everybody's watching me, and it just put me under more pressure. and then i I went to another detox, and ultimately, I don't know remember how many detoxes I went to, but it was it was several more at least. And then I went to treatment again. Um ironically, went to treatment at the place where I later, a decade later, ended up interning at in my next degree program, but I was a patient at the time and still did not get sober after that. Huh.
0: But then it was what was happening when you kept going back out? Were you just like, I'm going to figure this out? Or were you so sick? Because um, I've been both to you? were you're so sick where you're just like, I don't care. Like, I, I'm going to continue to drink. And if I get caught, so be it. I'm um, Mike Van Meter, special agent for the FBI. You know what?
1: I think that it was neither. For me, well, I remember, and I just actually just talked to a guy this week that had a similar experience. Um, he said he came back from treatment and, and he drank. And I asked him about it. I said, so what caused you? He goes, I don't know. He goes, "I, I Mike, this sounds weird. I know you're not going to believe me. But I just went to the liquor store and buy, and I I barely remember buying it. And the next thing you know, I'm drunk. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the experience I had. And I told this guy, I said, look, I've had that experience. It was just, it was almost like my brain would just take over and I would end up at the liquor store and not remember it. And not, it was like, it would just, it was almost like something overtook me.
0: How was your wife hanging in there, do it. during all this?
1: Oh, uh, just, just try. It. And, and it was, looking back, it was so sad. And I see it in other families now where, you know, she, I would go to treatment. She'd come back and she'd be like, oh, this is great. You're fixed. You're fixed. You know we're going to get back to our marriage, and then I'm drinking again. And and I looking back on those days and just seeing the sadness in her face, like the def- just being deflated, and it hurts me to even think about it. Uh, but that's it was just because she just had such high hopes. And um, as you'll see, though, she remember she was still thinking I was doing that to hurt her. Oh, like yeah. she didn't yeah. understand at that time. She did not d- understand the disease. And it was like, you know, I, th- you know, I love you so much. Why are you doing this to us? That was kind of the mentality, but it really hurt her right now. But after that second treatment I drank, but by the here's, the, here's the difference by this point, And this is what scared me was I knew I needed to get well, I knew it. And I, and I wanted to get well, and this is the key difference. Now I wanted to get well, but I couldn't.
0: Yeah. I, couldn't. That, that's happened. That, that happened to me.
1: When I made that decision and it was like, I couldn't get, and that became scary.
0: Oh, terrifying. And
1: when And now I know that I, w- I must have been in like stage four alcoholism because it, where it used to take tons of alcohol to get me inebriated, now I can get – I would end up in an emergency room with two beers. Now, that's a sign physiologically that your body is shutting down. Yeah. But uh, I was at the point now, and, and we can conclude with this. Here, here's the end where it was starting to scare me. and what, I you're,
0: you're around 46 years old? uh i mean at the time 46 47 yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah because i'm i'm six, almost 57 the reason eight, i, I say I, that is it's that's no time for a healthy man for his body to be shutting down uh and, and no that's what's happening. no no ironically when you look at the statistics too that's usually in the mid-40s is when
1: a lot of men decide to eat. you know you're either going to continue with this on till you die or you're going to get better if you look at the numbers the, huh. the mid-40s it's kind of like the Okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to die or are we going to get better? Yeah. And I, I actually fell into that statistic. So uh, you said very little alcohol. This,
0: your story, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, here I am um, blackout drinking. And one day I wake up in the emergency room. And there's my wife and my son who at that point was about maybe 11, 12 years old. And he, uh, I had this lady from the county standing over me. And I have no idea why I'm in the emergency room and she's asking me why i wanted to die and i said i have what <laughs> what and she said sir why 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 did you want to take your life and i'm like who are you talking to sir and then she's like do you know why you're here and i'm like and i'm looking at my wife and my kid i'm like are are they okay and they're like sir we're here for you tell me what what happened and she's like you don't know what happened last night do you and what, what had happened was I drank into a blackout. I, I, to this day, I have no recollection of this. And I'm in the, the garage, and apparently uh, I was drunk and was uh, uh, about to kill myself with a gun. And my son walked out, and he asked me what I was doing, and I said, I can't stop drinking. And I'm just going to go ahead and end it. You know, you guys would be better off. Uh, I'm just going to end this. And he goes, Dad, I don't think that's such a good idea. Why don't we go talk to him? How about we do this? How about we go talk to mom? And apparently I said, well, why don't you just go ahead and do it for me? I'm too drunk. And he said, well, tell you what, let's go talk to somebody. And he went and he got my wife, and uh, I ended up in the hospital, and there I was. And um, so I knew. I knew at that point, sitting in the hospital, that 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 was it. That was something really needs to be done. This is joke time is over. And my wife came over and she started stroking my hair. And we've been together since we were 19 years old. And she said, you know, behind all the gray and the the wrinkles, I still see the young man that I fell in love with. And she said, I thought that you didn't love me. I thought that this was about you weren't trying hard enough. And I thought that if you were going to die, you were going to die in a plane crash. You were going to get stabbed. You were going to get shot you would die of cancer, whatever. But I didn't think it was going to be alcohol that would take you from me. She goes, but I know, that it, I know that that's what it is. And She goes, I didn't believe it was a disease, but I clearly see it now. This is a disease and you're going to die. Now, what you need to know is I'm not going to threaten you anymore. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to leave. I will be with you to the end, mm. but it's not long from here. I know that's what's going to happen. And, uh, and I, at that moment, Uh, Pete, I looked up and I had uh, like this vision in my mind, like I'm I'm picturing myself in the grave, like I'm laying in the grave because that's where I was headed. And I had two different scenarios, and one was I could see my wife and my kids standing over the grave, and it's just them. There's no one else. And my son looking down into the grave and saying, what a shame, what a shame. That man could have done so much for his family, his country, his community, but he pissed it away. And then the other vision was my family and people around the grave and everybody's sad. And then my son says, this is not a time to be sad. This is a celebration of life because if you want to know how to live life, he just did it. He overcame his disease and his demons, and he went on to do great things for his family, his community, and his country. And if you want to know how to live life, folks, that's how you do it right there. And I that's when I made the decision that – I wanted to. That's what I wanted. I want. I. I kind of pictured the rest of my life by looking at the end of my life and what did I want people to say about me when I was gone, and that has been the driving motivator to get me into recovery. And it was not easy. That first year was very, very difficult. And if you're in your first year, <laughs> man, we you know I got a
0: huge. Smile. Difficult. That's an incredible story. I just got to thank you for a second. That's unbelievable. But so you, I mean, yeah. I wanna, you mentioned your first year. What was the hardest thing about you for your first year that you were about to say?
1: Uh, The physiological pull, Uh, your body is healing, your brain is healing, you're getting your vitamins, minerals, you're getting there's a lot of physiologic physiology that needs to correct itself, and your brain needs to correct itself. And I think that that pull, like that obsession to drink is still there. And for me, it took about a year and a half for much of that to go away. But you have to remember, it never completely goes away ever, ever. But like the constant draw, like, where it was a daily battle, like, the the desire to drink every day occurred in the beginning, which I don't experience, and you probably don't experience anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't. No, that's the danger too. The danger is you can let your guard down. But in the early days, it was that pull, and so I was ha- I was on Antabuse, uh, which is the drug that makes you get sick if you drink on it. I was taking GABA, uh, you know, a lot of Gaba multi, heavy multivitamins, you know, stuff like that to get everything reregulated. Sleep, getting my sleep patterns back. Uh, but you know what? Um, so I drank one last time after that. Uh, and I'll tell people that. How, that, how long, uh, how had, long
0: between like when you were sober and you put some time together and then you drank again?
1: Uh, when I left that hospital room, I think it was about a day. <laughs> a day. <laughs> okay. And then, but here's, here's what happened. Yeah. Uh, they put me on an and I remember I'm in the bedroom and I snuck a beer and my wife walked in and she looked at me. and She goes, you drank, didn't you? And I'm like, oh, what would make you say that? And she would say, she said, come here, dumbass. And I went in the bathroom. She said, look in the mirror. And my face was beat red. She said, you took an abuse and you drank on it. You're a dumbass. She goes, have a good night. And if you know anything about an abuse, it was not a good night. But that he, was August 11th of 2012. And so I consider the next full day 24 hours is my sobriety date because that was the first full 24 hours of no alcohol. And, um, that was it August 12th. That's also my wedding anniversary. And I've not had any alcohol, uh, since then what it's are, in,
0: in this coming August, is will be 10 years. What are some of the things that's just an amazing story? And, and I think you did a great job whether on purpose or not about the theme was your wife throughout a lot of mm-hmm. it. She kept appearing. Um, and like you said, she was there to the very end. Like she told you, Mm -hmm. what do you tell somebody that's in her shoes today dealing with a guy like you in August of 2012?
1: Well, I will say that everybody's story is different. And so uh, the unfortunate part is not everybody gets sober. You and I both know that, um, try not to give up, you know, before the miracle happens, try to stick in there. But I will say this. That you do have to protect yourself, and if you're in an abusive relationship, under no circumstances should you stay in an abusive relationship. Uh, Having said that, also, people have a right to do what they're going to do, and my wife told me, and and you, you can listen to my podcast where my wife actually tells her version of the story that I just told you. And what she, the conclusion she came recovery to Recovery is
0: possible. Recovery is possible. Yeah, Recovery That's is the name possible is the podcast. Yeah.
1: And she is episode number one and episode 100. So <laughs> the, the two, you know, but she tells the story. And one of the things that she had decided was that. Um, now, we're, we're religious people, my wife and I are, I are, right? My wife is very, very religious. And, and so she, to her, it, it was a marriage vow. And she struggled with this. Like, what do I do? He's abandoned me, you know, what, you know and she, she had resolved herself that unless I was a physically abusive to her, she was not going to leave. But it also did not mean that she needed to be present for the self-destruction. So her plan was to not divorce but to leave and just live separate from me. Mm-hmm. Now that ended up not happening, but um, – so if anybody – if you're the spouse, know that this is progressive. It's a disease. It does not mean that your loved one doesn't love you. They do love you. It's just that they have a brain, they have a disease that has hijacked their brain and there is a solution for it, but they have to be directed to that solution and they have to accept that solution. And all arrows, all fingers need to point to that solution. Uh, every discussion needs to be to the solution. And don't badger the person. Don't, you know, no amount of badgering, nagging, complaining is going to do anything. It's just going to be very calm, very simple. Here's the solution. You know what the solution is. When you're ready, let me know. I'll go to the ends of the earth to help you out. Okay? But I'm not going to. You're not going to abuse me. You're not going to do any of those things. But I'm also not going to talk to you about, um, you know, things that that don't exist. And when I can smell alcohol on you, and you're telling me that that you weren't drinking, I'm not going to debate you on it. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to complain about it. It is what it is. I'm not stupid. I smell it. You're drinking. And, um, you know, you know what the solution is. Let me know when you're ready. I mean, that's kind of an oversimpl- simplified yeah, way no, of, that was, of thinking I think of it. That's
0: what we try to do is get it, keep it simple for, for people. I, uh, last thing for, for you, before I got to let you go, what is, mm-hmm. what do you tell people that are struggling? What is, I mean, now you're becoming, not only is your experience spanning a decade, but you're, this is now your craft and you're somebody who is terribly bright and had great success. What do you tell people based on all this knowledge uh, and experience? What do you tell people that are going through it today that are struggling and just can't stop and, but they want to, they're at that point that you were at.
1: Well, I, for me, the difference was the disease model of it. As long as I thought that what I was doing was something, it was a moral issue. It was a defined whether I was a good or a bad person. It never meant anything to me. And I never had uh progress once I understood and was taught the disease model of addiction and that it was something that I had no control over, A, that made sense to me, and B, it took the pressure off of being a good or a bad person. Because after all, I love my wife. I love my children. I love, you know, there's other people in my fa- my life that I, I love. It wasn't that I knew, and I knew intuitively that that had nothing to do with it, but I couldn't understand why I kept drinking. And I heard it said to me once, I think it was in treatment that I heard this, that You know, Here in Virginia, when things start to bloom, I have horrible allergies, so I get snot and I cough and I wheeze and all those kinds of things. And I remember this counselor said to me, so imagine if I said to you, hey, Mike, you know what the problem is? You know why you have those allergies? Because you don't love your wife. You don't go to the gym enough. You don't take care of your body. You don't spend time with your kids. And you would look at me and go, what the hell does that have to do with anything? And the answer is nothing. And he goes, it's the same with addiction. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. You, your body has a reaction. You have allergies. Webster's definition of an allergy is the body having an abnormal reaction to a substance. You, with alcohol, are having an abnormal reaction to a substance. So, what do you do? You avoid the su- substance. It's easy. You don't have uh, any issues when you don't drink. Just like you, if you don't, or if you're not exposed to that allergen out in the environment, you don't react to it. It's that simple, Mike. It has nothing to do with you being good or bad. That kid over there can't eat crab fish. That kid can't <laughs> eat peanuts, and you can't drink. Yeah. But we don't look at that kid that can't eat peanuts and go, that poor kid, oh, my God, his life's over with. He'll never have a life because he can't eat peanuts. How ridiculous is that? Well, yeah. It's the same thing. He told me. All we do, you gave up everything so you could do one thing, and that's to drink. All we're asking you to do is to give up the one thing, that being drinking, so you can have everything. That's what we're asking. And you feel like that,
0: and that's what you did. Yeah, yeah, and life has gotten
1: exponentially better. I wouldn't go back to drinking today. Like, you know, I I talked to this family yesterday. I I mentioned earlier I have a, a law enforcement officer I'm working with. And um, he's already relapsed. He's come out of treatment. And his wife is – and it's just so sad. You know, his wife, you know, is calling me, and I can just feel the pain. And, you know, because she's one of those people, just my wife, you know, he comes out of treatment, and she's like, oh, I got my husband back. It's all going to be good. And he's already relapsed. And and to hear the pain – you know, you know this, Pete. It's when I sit and I talk to this woman about her husband, I just think, but do the grace of God, go on, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and I'm just so thankful that I am no longer doing that to my wife because I was doing that to my wife. And I'm just so grateful for that.
0: Well, and you so flipped it around and now you're carrying a message yeah. and you're inspiring and helping people. And that is, whew, talk about beating the odds, man. Mike, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, it's just fantastic.
1: Well, I enjoy talking with you. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're a fascinating guy and a great guest, man. I can't thank you enough.